1 Samuel chapter number 29, if you're there. Uh, it'll just be 11 verses. We'll get to it in just a moment if you didn't have occasion to be in the connection group this morning because you were out teaching or, or had another ministry responsibility or perhaps just didn't make it. I hope that you will uh, go to the, um, I don't know if it'll be on the podcast. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. Okay, uh, then email me if you would like to uh, see my notes on that or, or if you want to hear that, I'll, I'll make sure you, you get that. Um, but it's important, um, talked about some important things uh, in that, that message this morning. And if you're ever wondering, why, why do they do it that way or whatever? Can I, can I beg you to do this? Before you jump to conclusions, come talk to me. How about that? Thank you. I know that's, that's, a, that's a novel idea today because, you know, you go talk to Facebook, talk to me through Facebook. But come talk to me, seriously. Whether you're a member, non-member, regular tender. Um, when, it, when it comes to why we do the things we do it, all of that. Here's, here's where I am firmly. I am going to tell you why. Why? If I can't tell you why, then I shouldn't be doing it. All right. And you might disagree and we can graciously disagree and go to church. Right. Uh, because unity doesn't mean uniformity. And the key word is graciously disagree. But if you have questions about that kind of stuff, boy, it's, it's best to just seek clarity. And to ask the right person for it. And I want you to know I'm approachable. Text me, email me, call me, whatever you're comfortable doing. Don't make conclusions because of what you hear. Or be, even if, if you hear a message like, man, I don't quite get that. Man, I welcome that. I mean that. I welcome that. And at the end of the day, I promise you we won't always agree. But we can at least talk about it. And that's what Christians do. Amen? All right. First Samuel chapter number 29. In chapter 29... The narrator picks up where he left off back in chapter 28 in verse 2. Now, if you remember, he paused David's story to give the detail of Saul's story. But now in chapter 29, he's going to come back to David's story. But by this time in David's story, he's been running from King Saul for several years. Back in chapter 26, he, he had a second opportunity, not a first, but a second opportunity to kill the king himself. But instead, he refrained and told Saul that he was going to leave him to the judgment of the Lord. And this is important as we make our way into the message tonight. In fact, he gave Saul a speech that, that as I read it in chapter 26, is absolutely full of faith in God to deliver him. In chapter 26, verse 23, here's what David says to Saul when he had the opportunity to kill him and he didn't. He said, the Lord rendered every man his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered thee into my hand today, but I would not stretch forth mine hand against the Lord's anointed. And behold, as thy life was much set by this day in mine eyes, so let my life be much set by in the eyes of the Lord and let him deliver me out of all tribulation." That seems to be a man full of faith in that moment. Yet drop down to chapter 27 and verse 1, just a couple verses later. And David said in his heart, chapter 27, verse 1, I shall now perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape into the land of the Philistines. That's a totally different man now. 
David started thinking. That's what it means. He said in his heart. Did you know every action is a result of a thought? Every good choice you make is the result of a good thought you think first. Every bad choice you make is the result of a bad thought you think first. Well, David was thinking some bad thoughts here. He goes from faith in chapter 26 to fear in chapter 27. He goes from believing that God would deliver him to believing that Saul would kill him. And I, for one, tonight can't be too hard on David. Because I so quickly in my life go from faith to fear. I literally sometimes go to bed with faith and wake up with fear. I go to church on Sunday with faith and wake up Monday morning with fear. On top of that, just because David's a human, he's going to face those fluctuations. But on top of that, the trial he is facing and enduring is not short-lived. This has been happening for years, sleeping in caves, dodging javelins, trying to escape the the armies of Saul. To David, he's had enough. Frankly, he's wore out. He's lived under this burden for so long that he just threw up his hands and said, I'm done. Now, I don't point that out to justify what David did next, but to sympathize with what he did. Because we've all been there. We've all been in a season of difficulty that didn't seem to go away. We still served God, but it didn't go away. We prayed for a long time, but it didn't go away. We forgave, but it didn't go away. We had a hard talk, but it didn't go away. We read our Bible, but it didn't go away. And eventually we get tempted like David to throw our hands in the air and say, okay, I'm done. Am I by myself tonight? This is where David was. And unfortunately, his despairing thoughts led to desperate action. He ran from his problems, but he ran into bigger problems. For some reason, he thought it was safe and necessary to run to the enemy, to the Philistines. His decisions, and this is so dangerous, his decisions became more pragmatic than biblical. And it worked for a while. He talked Achish, the king of Gath, into giving him and his 600 men and their families a little village town in the country called Ziklag. And for 16 months, that's where they dwelt. But what David did during those 16 months is the problem. He began to slaughter innocent people that God never gave him orders to kill in terms of women and children. Then when Achaz would come to him and check in on him and ask him what he was doing, David would tell him that he had been destroying his own people. He lied to him. So so over time, Achish came to believe that David had become one of them and that David's own people were now his enemy. Now, this presented a problem for David. Here's why. Because Achish, along with the other commanders of the Philistines and their men, were about to go to battle against the Israelites over a strategic trade route they were wanting to possess. And Achish wanted David and his 600 men, who he came to trust, to fight with them. Now that's where we left off in verse 2 of chapter 28 a couple weeks ago. And then the narrator, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, went into telling Saul's story. So then we're left to wonder... How is David going to get himself out of this mess? Well, here's the short answer. He's not. But God is. First Samuel 29, verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered together all their armies to Aphek, and the Israelites pitched by a fountain which is in Jezreel. 
And the lords of the Philistines passed on by hundreds and by thousands. But David and his men passed on in the re-reward or the rear guard. That's what that means with Achish. Then said the princes of the Philistines, what are these Hebrews here? And Achish said unto the princes of the Philistines, is not this David? The servant of Saul, the king of Israel, which hath been with me these days or these years and have found no fault in him since he fell unto me unto this day. And the princes of the Philistines were wroth with him. And the princes of the Philistines said unto him, make this fellow return that he may go again to his place, which thou hast appointed him and let him not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he be an adversary to us. For wherewith should should he reconcile himself unto his master? Should it not be with the heads of these men? Is not this David of whom they sang one to another in dances, saying Saul slew his thousands and David his ten thousands? Are you seeing the picture? When the lords or the military generals of the Philistines noticed David and his men located in the rear guard in Achish's army, they threw a fit. They threw a fit for two reasons. Back in chapter 14, they remembered when they employed a couple Hebrew prisoners to fight with them against Israel. And in the midst of that battle, those Israelite prisoners turned on them and a lot of their own men were killed. They weren't going to let that happen again. Plus, they remembered back in chapter 17 when David killed their giant called Goliath. And he did it in such a fashion that the women of the town wrote a song about it. And the last thing they wanted was to have another song written about them because David turned on them and slew them like he did their giant. So they weren't going to let their stupidity in war be put into a song that the kids of the Middle East would learn in school for many generations. One song's enough for the kids choir. Achish tried to talk them into letting David stay. Oh, come on, it's David. He's been with me for 16 months. He's been a good guy. He's on our team. Now let him stay. But he was outvoted by the other Philistine lords and the majority vote won. He had to tell David to leave, verse six. Then Achish called David, said unto him, this, there's so much irony in here. Surely as the Lord liveth, thou hast been upright. And thy going out and thy coming in with me in the host is good in my sight. For I have not found evil in thee since the day of thy coming unto me unto this day. Nevertheless, the Lord's favor thee not. I got outvoted. Wherefore now return and go in peace that thou displease not the lords of the Philistines. And David said unto Achish, this is, he ought to have an Oscar for this. But what have I done? And what hast thou found in thy servants so long as I have been with thee unto this day, that I might not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord the King? Come on, man, pick me, pick me, pick me. David didn't want to get picked. This was his way out. And Achish answered and said to David, I know that thou art good in my sight as an angel of God. Did you notice that the only one that mentions God any time in this text is the Philistine king? Not the future king of Israel. Notwithstanding, verse 9, and the princes of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. Wherefore, now rise up early in the morning with thy master's servants that are come with thee, and as soon as ye be up early in the morning and have light, depart. Get out of here. So David and his men rose up early to depart in the morning to return to the land of Philistines, and the Philistines went up to Jezreel. All right, so here's David. He goes from faith to fear. He gets desperate and runs from his problems only to run into bigger problems. He has to kill innocent people and lie about it in order to not get caught. And eventually found himself in a situation where he and his men were at the rear guard position in the enemy's army about to go and fight against his very own people. Please feel the weight of this. 
if the Philistine lords had permitted David to stay in their army, he would have potentially killed Saul. He would have potentially killed many of his own countrymen and he would have potentially have been ruined politically for future kingship. This was a really big mess that David got himself into. Yet we read that by the end of chapter 29, David is walking out basically unscathed. He's walking out smelling like a rose. He was delivered from his own dilemma. How? Was it his charm? His ability to manipulate and persuade his his incredible acting abilities? I submit to you, no. It had nothing to do with David. His deliverance had everything to do with the mercy of God. I titled the message, Mercy for Our Mess. I know that God isn't mentioned once in this text by David. The only time he's mentioned is is in passing by King Achish. That didn't even believe in God in his heart. Yet God is everywhere in this story. God is working silently to deliver David. Now, this isn't any different than how God has worked in the past in David's life, all through the book of 1 Samuel, starting in verse six, chapter 16. He's been constantly working to choose David. Remember, his own father forgot about him in the pasture. But God made Samuel go find him. He's been working all through, starting in chapter 17, to preserve David for kingship. He delivered David from a lion. He delivered David from a bear. He delivered David from a giant. He delivered David from a maniac king and all his spear throwing. But this time's a little bit different because God isn't delivering David from an enemy necessarily. God is delivering David from David. David is in a midst or a mess of his own making. David has put himself into this dilemma and yet God still gets him out. David made this mess for himself, but God still worked silently, and may I add, surprisingly to deliver deliver David. I say surprisingly because God used the Philistine lords as David's savior. The Philistine lords, the enemies of God's people, that's who God used as his chess piece. Had they not recognized David located at the rear guard, had they not pressed into why he was in the army, had they not persisted that he and his men be discharged immediately, David would have found himself in a dilemma that would have been irreversible and irreparable. But God in his mercy, I said God in his mercy, save David from David. God in his mercy in a silent way, in a surprising way, saw David heading down a dangerous path and intervened in order to keep David from ruining himself. Samuel Riddad, I've never read after him. This quote popped up in my study. I thought it was a brilliant summation of the text. He says, how often, alas, Do we make it necessary that we should be rescued from our own path of unbelief by the manifest providence of God rather than by the energy of a faith which turns to him? We cannot censor David as though we were innocent, 
But seek to learn from the lesson which God has given us here that all such departure from God is a grievous dishonor to his name. And that if we are spared from the outward consequences of our own belief, it is not because of any faithfulness on our part, but because of him whose mercy endureth forever. David didn't ask God to intervene, not one time. He didn't pray. He didn't inquire the Lord. David was faithless, but even though he was faithless, God was faithful. And God's mercy endured in David's life to the point where he gave David a way out. Remember that passage in 1 Corinthians 10? But God is faithful. He is merciful in that he always provides a way of escape. I hope you're listening tonight. Because this is why I believe the Holy Spirit inspired the narrator to write these 11 verses in Scripture. To show us a picture of God's enduring, God's delivering, and God's sovereign mercy in our lives. To show us that when our faithfulness has led us down paths that are dangerous and into dilemmas that are inescapable, God is still there. To show us that when we make a mess of things, God's mercy still endures. To show us that God will at times deliver us and save us from ourselves. I'm just going to be real honest with you. If I was God, I wouldn't save you from yourself. And you probably wouldn't save me either. But that's why he's God. Because he's merciful. And his mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Here's the essence of the text. God gives merciful deliverance for our messy dilemmas. That's the essence. Take it home with you tonight. God gives merciful deliverance for our messy dilemmas. Let's, let's talk about this and we'll go home. Have you ever found yourself in a mess? even of your own making, but God delivered you. Have you ever ventured down a dangerous path of sin, yet God stepped in and did something behind the scenes to preserve you from ruining your life? See, here's the truth. God's mercy has worked silently and surprisingly in all of our lives in order to keep us out of terrible trouble. We will never understand until we get to heaven, probably, the chess pieces that God has moved in our favor to keep us from ruining our lives. He's done many things, if we really think about it, to keep us from dangerous paths. And at the time, maybe we couldn't see the hand of God because we weren't looking for it like David wasn't looking for it. Like David, we weren't even asking for God's intervention, but that's why they call it mercy. God stepped in even when we didn't invite him to do so. As a parent, I got to thinking about this. I think other parents could empathize here. There are times when you probably had to step in and keep your child from doing something that would hurt them or harm them, even though they never once turned to you and asked you to step in. They didn't ask you because they probably didn't think that they were about that what they're about to do was harmful or in their immaturity or lack of foresight, they couldn't see the harm that was coming their way. But because you're a parent and you've been a little farther down the road, you could just a few months ago, I was walking down lilac next to my son who was riding his bike. 
I was walking on the sidewalk and he was right beside me on his bike, right in front of me on his bike. So we could see the oncoming traffic. I said, I want you to stay on the sidewalk. If you've been on Lilac where it starts to curve over by my house, you know, people are going 87 miles an hour around that corner. And if that's one of you, I'm going to throw a rock at your windshield. And we're going around that corner. And instead of my son staying on the sidewalk, it's a few feet in front of me, he started veering off into the street. I'm not making this up because I needed a sermon illustration. This really happened. At the moment he got in the street, a car is coming head on to hit him. So I run up there and I grab his seat and I pick it up. And put him back on the sidewalk. And I said, is this how you ride your bike when you're not in my presence? Because you would have been dead, like literally dead. As a fifth grader, he didn't see as far down the road as I did. He wasn't looking. But because I love him, I saved him from himself. I could have just said, hey, you got yourself into this mess. Hope you get yourself out. And so does your mother. I mean, I, I could have just let the car hit him and hope for the best. No blood, no foul. <laughs> but I showed mercy. Mercy. I saved a fifth grade boy from himself. That's an elementary example of merciful deliverance. And while most of us in here have outgrown the need of God's deliverance when it comes to riding a bicycle safely, we have not outgrown the need of God's deliverance when it comes to life. Like my son, we start to faithlessly drift into danger. Faithless decisions always lead to dangerous paths. And on those paths, we can't see as far down the road as our Heavenly Father can. We don't even know sometimes that we need delivered like my son didn't even know. We don't even see the oncoming traffic. We don't even fathom how close we are to ruin. But God sees and God knows and praise his merciful name. He intervenes. I think of relationships many can look back in their life. And you can say, boy, what if God would have let me continue that relationship? We were absolutely convinced that we found the right person to spend the rest of our lives with. Everything seemed to be clicking, but then, well, they broke up with us or suddenly things went south and it, it devastated us. It, it wasn't until several years later that we realized it was God's mercy that broke off that relationship. God saw something coming down the road as a result of that relational choice that we couldn't see coming. And he graciously yanked us back on the sidewalk before we ruined ourselves with committing to a lifelong relationship that would make us miserable. Such was the case. God was moving the chess pieces in my life when I was 16 years old. Told this story before, I'll tell a very abbreviated version, but I was liking a girl from Turpin, Oklahoma. Stay away from girls in the panhandle. Just stay away from them. <laughs> Just kidding. They're all good. Those cardinals will get you. She got me. We went out. I, I wasn't supposed to be dating at that time. 
because my parents could see farther down the road than I could. And they understood that a 16-year-old probably isn't ready to get married. Therefore, he's not ready to date. That's a brilliant idea, but it is true. I didn't think it was a brilliant idea when I was 16. Now I think it's a really brilliant idea. <laughs> and I wasn't supposed to date, but I, I had my own car and said I was going to go to Luke's house. He's a, he was a deacon's kid. You've got to watch out for those deacon's kids, too. <laughs> I, me and Luke got in our truck and we, we met our girlfriends that we weren't supposed to have. Well, his parents probably let him have one, but my parents didn't let me have one. <laughs> We met them at the bowling alley. It was a great night. Um, and, you know, just did what 16-year-olds do at a bowling alley, I guess. You know, bowl strikes and flirt. That's just kind of what we did. And, and then we went home. A couple days later, she wrote me a note. She came to our youth group and, and wrote me a note. None of you know her, so quit trying to think about who it is. And, um, and don't tell my wife if you do. Um, but she, she wrote me a note and... Um, she gave it to me at church and went to school that next Monday. And I, I folded up that note, you know. Um, she sprayed her perfume on it. I don't know if y'all remember doing that, but uh, yeah, she, she was cool. And uh, she folded that up and into like a heart-shaped type letter. And, and so I read it and, and I folded it and then I would read it again and i fold it and I'd smell it and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I thought I'd put it back in my bag in front of my desk, and I didn't. God was, God was moving a chess piece, and it fell on the floor. And apparently someone grabbed it. And um, my dad had a note on my desk when I came back from, we call it break or recess, is what public school calls it. When I came back from, from break, I, I saw the note, on, and I know my dad's handwriting, and he said, come see me. I didn't know why he wanted to see me, but um, got in there and he pulled out the note. I could smell it. I knew exactly what note it was. <laughs> and, and, and typically my dad's, def, his default discipline was a spanking. Like that's, that's what he, that was his first resort. I typically think to this, it probably ought to be one of our last resorts. It was my dad's first resort. And, and so he didn't, he didn't like pull out the, the wooden paddle. He, 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 and by the way, my last spanking was when I was 17. So if you think I was too old to get a spanking, not in my dad's eyes. <laughs> I was 16, but he's like, bend over boy. And he'd wear me out. Um, but he started reading the letter. The truth is he, he didn't have to give me a spanking. I think the Lord gave me exactly words that I needed to hear on that day. And, and he read the letter out loud and and he just folded it back up, not into a heart shape, but just the best he could. And, and then he asked me, so is this girl saved? Uh, I don't know. She, she doesn't come to church very often. Does, does she walk with God? I, I don't know. And he began to ask me all those questions and I was basically indicting myself. And the Holy Spirit was convicting me. And my dad said, you would be really wise to cut off that relationship right now. And he told us the stories of his high school years and told me why. And it just kind of clicked in my mind. I said, I need to trust my dad on this one. And so I did. I did. It's a brilliant idea, young people. But you ought, you ought to work hard at trusting your parents. I trusted my dad's advice. And I look back at that. And I, you know what I think? God's mercy. God's mercy. I mean, 
If I would have went forward with that relationship, I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt, I was on I was on a road to sexual impurity fast. Real fast. And 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 I think God in his mercy intervened even when I didn't ask him to. And for that reason, on June 24th, 2006, I received my bride. She was a virgin. I was a virgin. And now I can't even imagine. I text Jenny before I came in here. She's sick because she had her treatment on Friday. But I, I text her and said, man, I, I can't. I don't even like going to church without you. Like I, I've come to be one flesh with her in a way that it wasn't that way at the beginning. I was a selfish husband. I was too busy of a husband. I was angry in some ways. But, but God has changed my heart and God has changed her heart. And our marriage is, is, is far from perfect, but so satisfying and so fulfilling and at a level I never thought it could be. And at those times in our marriage in a season of such, such sweet, sweet times, I, I always just stop and thank God. Thank you for intervening when I didn't even ask you to. Because now I get to worship God every Sunday and every Wednesday with my sweetheart that I love and she loves you. You know, this kind of intervention happens with career decisions. We get a lucrative offer. Or we find a lucrative opportunity and call it an offer. And we're convinced that we finally found our career break. We're going to finally uh, find ourselves in a company that will pay us for what we're worth. We're going to finally be able to, to get out of a toxic work environment. We're going to finally be able to move closer to family. But then out of nowhere, the job opportunity slips through the cracks. They choose somebody else. We don't get a call back. They decided not to expand that department that you were being hired for. They decided the timing wasn't right for their company. Something came up in one of their talks with the reference that steered them away from hiring you. And it left you wondering, what in the world just happened? It could be that God's mercy saw something down the road that would have ruined you. And he saved you from it. A year into being a youth pastor right here at Fellowship Baptist Church. I got, I got severely discontent. My wife wasn't adjusting to a small town. She came from Lubbock, Texas. She didn't like it. She loved the church, but just wasn't adjusting. I got a couple phone calls from people from big churches or from institutions. And I, I, I began to get discontent and try to think that grass was greener on the other side. And at 211 West Walnut, where Eli resides right now, is where our first home was. And I called my dad and, and it was so impulsive. I told my dad, I think I'm done here. Have I ever told you this story? I, I, I said, dad, I think I'm done. I think God's moving me on. And my dad's just floored. Like, what are you talking about? You've been here like 366 days. I said, well, I just, I think God's moving us. You know, God's moving us. Well, what makes you think that? Because I got peace about it. I got peace. I got my own definition of peace, but I got peace about it. And you know what my dad did? He said, okay. That's what he said. That's the worst thing he could have said. I would have rather him fought with me. But he said, okay. And the moment he walked out of there, I told my wife, I shouldn't have done that. That was impulsive. And I, I remember that, that God just began to move chess pieces and close doors, like slam doors in my face. 
And I look back at that, not with bitterness. I look back at that and say, thank you, Lord. I was discontent. I was trying to get out of here. But yet, almost 16 years later, I stand behind the pulpit as a pastor of Fellowship Baptist Church. And God would have to swallow me up in, in a well's belly and vomit me out to get me to leave this place. And I thought, what would I have missed out on? Our family missed out on. This church would have went on. You would have been fine. But what would I have missed out on had I let discontentment steer the ship? Oh, but God's mercy. See, my burden in this message is to open your eyes to the ways in which God's mercy has saved you from you. To provoke in you tonight a sense of thankfulness for the ways in which God has offered his merciful deliverance for your messy dilemmas. Even at times when you didn't ask him for it. How many would agree with me? He's a good, good God. So our response to this reality about his character should cause us to do, I think, two things tonight. First, we should worship him for his mercy. That's what David did. He wrote a whole song about it. Psalm 118, I'll just pick out four verses from there. Put them on the screen. Oh, give thanks in the Lord for he is good. Why? Because his mercy endures forever. His mercy endures our stupid decisions. Let Israel now say that his mercy endureth forever. Verse three. Let the house of Aaron now say that his mercy endureth forever. Let them that now fear the Lord say that his mercy endureth for what is he saying? His mercy doesn't run out. It was his mercy was there before Adam and Eve were ever on planet earth. And his mercy will always be there. Maybe this is why David wrote in Psalms 23, 6, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I think David's saying this, I could not run it because I tried. I tried to put on my running shoes. I got in the starting blocks. I told God I was done and I tried to outrun his goodness. I tried to outrun his mercy, but God said, not so fast. Now I will tell you this, God's a just God. And there can become a Romans one in your life if you studied that lately. When God says, okay, okay. At some point, Proverbs 29, 1, he that hardeneth his neck after being often rebuked, you keep hardening your neck to God, shall suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. Romans chapter 1 speaks of that reality. We got to understand that your fellowship with God will be greatly hindered if you keep running. But hear me closely. It takes a long run to outrun God's mercy. I love, I love, I love the fact that when I veer on the road and oncoming traffic is coming my way, God picks me up by the seat and he puts me back on the sidewalk. But we shouldn't just worship as a result of learning about God's work mercy. Now, let me close with this. We should welcome God's mercy in our life. What I mean by that is that we should invite his mercy to intervene at any time in order to keep us from any path, any opportunity, or anybody that isn't best for us. Be looking for ways, church, in which God and his mercy is telling you no. 
Be looking for ways in which God is telling you not now. Be looking for ways in which God is telling you to slow down, to turn around. Don't buy that. Don't go there. Don't take that job. Don't date them. God might show his mercy through a sermon. He might show his mercy through a song. He might show his mercy through a friend, a spouse, a parent, a grandparent, a pastor, a youth pastor, a scripture verse or a closed door. Don't react to God's saving mercy in your life with bitterness. Welcome his mercy. He sees farther down the road than you do. He knows what's best. Young people, give me your eyeballs just for a second. Give me your second. You have got to view your spiritual authorities as the agents of God's mercy in your life. Are you hearing me? I need to get down and talk to you for just a second. If you only view your parents through the lens of the fact that, well, they're, they're killjoys. They're there to make my life boring. They're there to restrict my life. They're there to take away my freedom. If that's how you view your God-given parents, and by the way, they are God-given. You didn't get to choose them. God chose them. In all their frailties and weaknesses, they're your mom, they're your dad. And if you view them as people that are trying to ruin your life instead of people that God might be using to save your life, you will continually resist what they tell you. But if you will see them as agents of God's mercy, then even the hard things they tell you, you'll say yes. Because when you say yes to them, you're saying yes to God that sent them your way. It's all about how you see them. And you might be thinking right now, nope, nope. Come spend a day in my house and you won't say that because my parents are messed up. Okay, let me talk to you about this for a second. God showed his mercy through Philistines. You hearing me? The enemies of God's people, they killed and slaughtered God's people. Tell me the last time your parents murdered somebody. If God can save somebody and deliver somebody from a mess through a wicked Philistine, what makes you think he can't save you and spare you through an imperfect parent? Hello? They don't have to get A pluses in every area of their life for you to listen to them. They don't. And don't make them. Because you'll be a parent one day and you'll never get an A plus. Trust me, I thought I would. And I might get in a D right now. It's hard. Like super hard. But they love you. If they didn't love you, here's what they would say. Do your own thing. That's what they'd say. You want drugs? Go. You want alcohol? Go. You want sex? Go. You want that relationship? Go. If they didn't love you, they would just let you do your own thing. The fact that they are fighting for you means they love you and care about you. View them that way. I'm telling you, it'll make your life better. Yeah. Maybe you're in a mess right now. Right now, even one of your own making and you know it. Your marriage isn't what, what God wants it to be. And you know you've contributed to that. Your relationship with your parents is messy and you know you're partly responsible. Your finances are, are, are all a mess and you know it's because of bad spending and stewardship habits. Listen, if you're in a mess of your own making, please, please, please look up. God's mercies are new every morning. He's slow to anger. He's rich in mercy. It endures forever. It never runs out. He always hears the humble prayer of repentance. So welcome his mercy into your mess. 
and watch how he is in the business of restoration.